Best Book Bits podcast brings you Andrew Crossley, property, wealth, and finance expert, author of 12 best-selling books, derivatives trader, adventurer, and man of many talents. Andrew, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. No problem. Now, for my audience that uh, never heard of you and don't know who you are, tell us a little bit about yourself, your younger days, and how you got to where you are now. Shall I, I'll start with the uh, the end uh, before the beginning. Um, so the, the six books I wrote were property and finance-based books. Uh, and I wrote my first book back in 2014, Property Investing Made Simple, because I could see a lot of mum and dad investors uh, being uh, led astray by many uh, marketing companies that are selling off-the-plan apartments and house and land packages in dodgy areas. And I wanted to protect as many would-be investors as possible by uh, highlighting the pitfalls associated with property investing because there are far too many people that are afraid uh, or don't know where to start. And I wanted to make it um, simpler, hence why I called property investing made simple. Uh, it's not easy, but it is simple. And and then after that first book, uh, I wrote five more. One of them was a an updated version of that first book about a year ago. And the number of other books included the 100K property plan because it's always important to have a plan. Just going to hold that book up there and that's one of the reasons that uh, I come across your work and I know you've got one there. If you want to hold it up, we can both hold it up together and that's it, the 100K property plan. Check it out, guys. We'll talk about it soon, but continue, Andrew. Uh, I also wrote the Australian uh, Property uh, Investment Handbook of 2018 and I, I added the 1819 so I can then update it every couple of years, 2021, and have several more books in the wings. Uh, and commercial finance and property development made simple as well. And then the children's books. Um, I wanted a legacy for my two kids, Ben and Lisa, and so I wrote the Billy and Harry Adventures series uh, where it's about a horse and a dog. They go on a different adventure every every book and uh, my two kids are the, the two other main characters in the book. And it's funny when my daughter critiques me on the clothes I've got her character to wear by the same name. Uh, so that's brought a, a lovely connection uh, to my kids. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask about that. That's um, that's fantastic. Billy and Harry's Adventures, is that what the, the series is called? Yes. Yep. Yeah, uh, awesome. So Billy and Harry go camping, Billy and Harry go on a winter holiday, Billy and Harry go to the zoo. Uh, it's it's funny because on Amazon when they became number one bestsellers, uh, in, in the in the um, small window of time on Amazon.com, they were outselling Harry McClary uh, and Spot the Dog. Uh, and then my, my, my most recent book um, on property was outselling Elon Musk's uh, recent book um, for a short time there. So that was um, that was fun. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Uh, a man of many talents. Uh, I'll definitely jump into some of the other talents as well. But take us back to uh, where you grew up and, and what were you like in, in your younger years? Yeah, so I grew up in Melbourne and I, I, I found like I was outside looking in and I didn't quite fit. Uh, I couldn't find anything that inspired me in Melbourne at the time when I was 20. Uh, and so I left overseas on a one-way ticket I, I was working on the, the ski lifts in Mount Buller for a season um, and through the, the a friend of mine actually uh, passed away while skiing with him on a particular day and at his wake 
I met a friend of his who said, come and teach skiing in Austria, and that all sounded wonderful. Uh, so on a one-way ticket, I went to Austria and realised that you have to pass a bunch of exams and do a bunch of tests, and I paid a, a tutor to give me uh, lessons in German uh, for about a month, and uh, with, with only about $200 in my pocket, I had to make a decision. Uh, you know, that's the only money I had to my name. Do I pay for this exam and, and hope to pass and then uh, look for a job, or do I go to London and try my luck as most Aussies do? And I thought, look, I'll, I'll pay for the exam. I passed. And uh, I've done five full seasons uh, in Austria as an Austrian qualified ski instructor. Um, what are some other things I've done? Um, I've just achieved my um, probationary first dan uh, black belt in Japanese freestyle karate. And I'm a specialized um, scuba diving instructor. Correct. Yep. Correct. And back in the early days when you went to London, I know you've done some work in the Cayman Islands, Italy, the UK, and Netherlands, building wealth for companies. So talk to me about your career, your early days, how that actually started apart from the skiing instructor, um, how you sort of find, um, how you sort of sharpened your axe in your early 20s overseas. Talk about that. So living in London, uh, it's a miserable place uh, with no money, and it's a great place with money. Uh, and I realized that being a ski instructor wasn't going to make me much money, uh, unless, of course, you're a private instructor for a wealthy family in Aspen. Uh, that might be a little different. Uh, but I, I worked um, in a bar, uh, in a cocktail bar uh, in London, uh, and then I moved into advertising, uh, working in uh, Islington. Uh, and then I got into a, a software company in Mayfair, uh, near Piccadilly, near St. James's Palace, uh, probably the best part of London. And uh, I worked selling uh, investment software programs for the stock market. Uh, and that the company's owner went on to do other things and he put my name forward for a company in the Netherlands. Uh, and I went for an interview and was hired to work uh, on the phones, um, initially cold calling, uh, high net worth individuals, and moving up to being an associate partner in the firm uh, within a few years. And I was trading off-market derivatives in uh, or futures and options contract in wine, uh, French wine, Italian wine. Uh, I got to drink a lot of it as well, of course, as one should, to uh, appreciate, um, you know, your job more. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I, that moved me or that allowed me to, to move with the company to the Cayman Islands uh, and we had a lot of high net worth individuals in the uh, in the states dealing with us in the Cayman Islands, uh, and so in the Netherlands, Cayman Islands, they moved me to near Tuscany in Italy. That was ironically depressing because I, I went from um, living on a tropical island, probably the most one of the most beautiful islands in the world, having a city job with good money, teaching scuba diving in the evenings and weekends, uh, and going to to Italy. Um, and who wants to go to Europe when you've lived um, on a tropical island? Uh, but, you know, I began to appreciate living in Tuscany. And uh, my wife and I lived there for about nine months. And then she's Dutch. And so to wait for her visa to be approved to come to Australia uh, to kill time, uh, I did another season in Austria uh, teaching skiing. Uh, that was in 2004-05 uh, season. Um, around Christmas, and then uh, we arrived in Australia in beginning of roughly April 2005. 
And then I just want to pause really quickly because there's a lot of serendipities here. I actually lived in uh, the UK in Wimbledon and went to Austria in the slopes. And my wife is Dutch heritage, not Dutch born, but Dutch heritage. Uh, been to Italy a lot, uh, spent some time here, but never went to the Cayman Islands. But continue, I just wanted to let you know the serendipity of your story is, is hitting home hard. Well, and um, it, it certainly keeps life interesting being married to a Dutch female. It does, yeah. Um, and of course, um, I did learn uh, a lot of um, Dutch words, probably more German teaching skiing, uh, uh, but also uh, Dutch words. Uh, sadly, it's only the bad words that I still remember. Um, as you do. As you sure do. You picked up a bit of Italy as well. I, um, I do have uh, an Italian uh, history on myself. So, um, yeah, what was it like nine months in Italy? Did you, did you learn the language a little bit? Yeah, so I lived a little bit. Um, my wife, being Dutch, already spoke four languages. So within three weeks, um, you know, she had an understanding of Latin, which means that many other languages come quite quickly. And so Italian, she did all the talking when we went shopping and I didn't have to learn any, uh, except order a wine or, a, you know, um, whatever it might be. Uh, but we lived in Lago Iseo, Lake Iseo, and, and there are four main lakes in Italy, um, Como, uh, Garda, Mogiorno, and Iseo, and um, beautiful part of Italy, uh, and just up the road from Tuscany where we spend a lot of time. And uh, so living in Australia, uh, I worked in finance, uh, working for a developer. And I realised that this developer's um, real estate agents were selling you know, stock to clients based on a, a stock list. Uh, and I was helping the clients get the finance. And I realized that at the time, early on, that that's not really the best way to go about buying property. Um, you should consider established property as well as new. Uh, you should consider regional as well as inner city or houses as well as townhouses or capital growth as well as cash flow. And don't just buy off a stock list because of a pretty picture or brochure. Uh, so I was working for that company, uh, got into being a, a BDM for a finance company, uh, and so I've helped mortgage brokers over the last 15 years with finance and structuring loans and uh, maximising borrowing capacity for would-be investors so they don't snooker themselves with their first property purchase, uh, as well as I set up my property advisory buyer advocacy business uh, in 2012, uh, and that was really the the launching pad for um, you know coming up with the material based on my knowledge and giving me the confidence to want to put a book together. As I guess you've heard the phrase that there's a book in all of us, but um, most people fail at ever putting pen to paper, and if they do start, most people fail at finishing. Let alone. When did you when did you publish your first book, and, and what was that process like? In as you're just about to say, putting all your thoughts and knowledge into your first book. Uh, look, in 2014, it took me eight months to write about 55,000 words. Uh, and I had this manuscript and, um, you know, it, it could have quite easily ended up in the, in the garage in a bunch of boxes. Uh, as often writers' books can end up doing, they're full of their own self-importance and having written a book uh, and they're really excited about it and they print a thousand copies thinking they're going to sell them. And the reality is, is, is far different to that because you can have the best kept secret out there if you don't market it properly. Yeah. 
And so at a networking group, uh, I saw on stage a Amazon best-selling author talking about how he became a best-selling author, and I thought, well, look, I want that. Uh, and, and so I, and I, coincidentally, um, as, as my luck would have it, I sat at this function next to a female who introduced herself as, an, uh, as a publisher. And, and so we then collaborated all my 12 books from that point uh, and she helped me uh, do the layout and the structure and the, um, the grammar and the punctuation uh, because it's been a long time since school. I don't know what a conjunctive pronoun is, for example. Uh, and so she did everything for me to get it ready to print. And then I, um, I learned to market it through um, having met this, uh, this, this guy, Steve Brosman, who's a, is a great um, selling author. Yep, perfect. Yeah, it just goes to show why right, networking does pay off and, and talking about things that, that you're obviously passionate about and knowledgeable about, putting the right team around you to, to go far and, and further is great. Now you've written uh, 12 books, which is fantastic, and um, that's how I sort of come across yourself as well. Now, talk to me a little bit about sort of property advisory and what you do and how you represent the buyer, not the seller. What is the difference between... Uh, between that for the layman out there that doesn't understand that? So most people working in the property industry are trying to sell you something, uh, whether it's a real estate agent or, a, you know, a, a typically what might be a 23-year-old, young, smooth-talking, uh, good-looking guy with a uh, probably a poor-fitting suit uh, trying to convince you that property is the way to go. Um the other side of the fence is a buyer's agent. So a buyer's agent represents the buyer in the property transaction. A buyer's agent isn't selling property. They're not promoting property. Um, they're not promoting one strategy over another. A buyer's agent understands his client's needs and objectives and borrowing capacity and tries to do the best they can with what they've got for that client. Now, of course, uh, some buyer's agents follow a brief uh, because clients might be time poor. They might be uh, in, a, in an industry where their job's taking all their time and they may lack the knowledge um, or time to find a property or they may not even know where to start if they're investing. If they know, uh, if they're buying a principal place of residence, they probably have a fair idea where they want to live. They may not have the time to find the right property so they engage a buyer's agent to do all the legwork. Uh, equally, an investor, um, more importantly, may not know where to start looking. They're not going to live in it. Uh, they have to overcome their own uh, perhaps mindset of trying to buy where they live or trying to buy something that they would live in, uh, which is often a mistake that an investor makes. So a buyer's agent would do all the work in the research uh, to find where to buy. And then, of course, sourcing the dwelling in the suburb that would uh, suit the widest demographic possible, because you don't want to buy a uh, you know a single bedroom apartment in a suburb where eighty percent of the demographic are families. And so it's important to buy the most suitable dwelling. And then, of course, I negotiate for my client. And I find that when when I've bought dozens and dozens and dozens of properties for clients, uh, I'm. I dare say I'm better at negotiating on property than a client who's bought three in their life. Yeah. And so those elements of negotiating for a client could save the client, the equivalent of my fee. Of course, 
the mere fact they've engaged with all the research and sourcing would improve the potential and reduce the risk uh, compared to perhaps what they could have done for themselves. The property advisory side of things is doing a fact find for the client and understanding their goals and their assets and their liabilities and their income and try to build a portfolio of properties rather than just finding one, try to uh, map out a plan of building a portfolio over a time frame, could be 15, 20 years, whatever might be suitable to that particular client and work out what they need to do to achieve their end goal. Yep. I want to sum up, I've heard you mention a a great um, statement about uh, being a successful property investor, and I'll just read it. Uh, Successful property investors know that property investment uh, is like a puzzle, and the key to their success is knowing that the pieces and putting them together in the right sequence. An unsuccessful investor doesn't know how to solve the puzzle. They don't know all the pieces. They just go shopping for what they think is a good investment. Um, I think what you're really talking about is putting the team together. What do you think about that? Like, get if you're an investor, don't do it all by yourself, but engage with the experts, build a team. We're, we're talking about wealth uh, creation. Um, would that be correct? Look, absolutely. And far too many people listen to the wrong, um, you know, people for advice. Uh, they're probably, perhaps, unfortunately. Um, I say, unfortunately, it's a lovely thing to have family around you that are willing to be helpful. Uh, but, you know, if you've got a family member at a barbecue that's giving you advice on property and that person's, you know, renting, well, you'd be a fool to listen to that family member's advice. Or if that family member's only ever bought one property, uh, then you'd be a fool to listen to their advice. And they may have good intentions, you know, this, you know, your Uncle Bruce at the local barbecue, but um, really it's the biggest mistake or one of the biggest you could make. So it's important to get a team around you. And when I say a team, it's a good start to know where to buy and then what to buy and having someone do all that for you. But, of course, you need a good property manager. You need a good property uh, inspector and pest inspector. You need a good accountant. You need a good conveyancer and there are some conveyances that are better than others because they actually give you advice rather than just saying they've read the contract and don't really provide real value. And you need a quantity surveyor for a depreciation schedule. So all these things uh, combine to making a more successful uh, approach to building a portfolio and and if you miss out on, on one of those key pieces, then the puzzle will never be never be fully complete. Um, yeah. You don't want to uh, have an incomplete puzzle or incomplete, you know, it's like if you're a movie buff uh, and if you've watched the movie uh, Captain America, I think uh, towards the end she's realising she's always been fighting with one arm behind her back and, and if you miss one of these pieces in the puzzle, you're never going to be equipping yourself with um, sufficiently to be as successful as what you could be. Yeah, understand. Now, I just want to segue back to what you talked about developers and um, white label builders and, and property marketers and, and even sprucklers. Um, it's not a, is it a bad investment if someone purchases? It doesn't mean it's a bad investment. It might not just be it's the best investment long term. What, what is the difference between uh, that? Because it, it's, we're not talking about the quality of the development or the quality of the dwelling, uh, but more or less we're talking about where the fees are either up front or behind the scenes. Is that what you're sort of... I just want to get a clear understanding on your thoughts on, on the differences between that. 
Yeah, so there's a lot of good property providers out there mm-hmm. and some are not good. Some are trying to sell a um, ill-prepared, easily misled mum and dad investor who want to make a difference in their lives, uh, a dud property in a dud location like, um, you know, Murumba in Queensland. Um, and, and there are many dud locations, um, probably more so in Queensland than um, many other states. Uh, there's also some good suburbs in Queensland, of course, as well. Um, and there's some good stock as well. And what's important is to understand not just look at one stock list from one provider, but also be able to engage someone to compare the quality of the stock and the location and the inclusions and the price with a whole bunch of stock out there from a whole bunch of providers and and sift through all that and find the, the, the good stuff that's worth considering and not in an isolated manner. It's worth understanding the pros and cons of investing in a house and land uh, from a good stock provider versus an established property in, in a more established suburb and understanding what is most suitable to you. So a spruker, and I, and I talk about that in a, in a justifiably derogatory manner when I do, is someone who pays less attention to the client's needs and more attention to making a lot of undisclosed commissions in flogging something to the client that may not be suitable to the client and they, they probably or unlikely are going to disclose the commissions they're making. And that's wrong, not disclosing any monies and also not paying um, sufficient regard to the client's individual circumstances. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, well put, and I appreciate that. Um, talk to me a little bit. I, I don't know too much about it, but obviously the, the WA mining boom and bust and property, obviously, uh, back in the day, I'm not sure if you were around then. I, I certainly wasn't in regards to property investing. But what is the story of the boom and bust with WA mining, with people from Victoria putting money into places they've never heard or seen before and, and losing a lot of money? What's the story behind that? Look, the, the problem that occurred a number of years ago and also in Queensland is you had these property spruiking companies, not all of them, of course, uh, but a, a great number that had a glossy brochure that talked about how uh, property prices were rapidly rising in some of these locations because the the mining industry in the, some of those locations was uh, growing legs and, and there was a lot of infrastructure being built in these areas. Uh, and, of course, then there's a lot of workers being flown in, fly-in, fly-out type people um, to develop that infrastructure in that location. And so rents were rapidly rising. And so these spruikers took advantage of this um, myopically-minded uh, short-term situation and on the back of that um, I would dare say some of them uh, misled people into believing this is a long-term secure investment. And the reality is far different. If you buy in a one-horse town, you're going to buy a dud, uh, in my opinion, or you're going to risk buying a dud. Because if that one horse dies, then... And when you say horse, I want to just reflect with my audience. You might be meaning one industry, like a one industry town. Yep. Little analogy, uh, correct. So if it's a if it's a one horse town, I mean one industry. Uh, if there's only one industry in the town, 
and that industry dries up, there's nothing to keep the population um, to the town. So people leave and the town dies. And that's what happened with a lot of WA locations and Queensland locations is once this infrastructure had been built, property prices had, let's say, tripled or quadrupled in a very short period of time uh, and people were patting themselves on the back having bought some of these properties, but then, of course, they didn't sell. And what happened is then there was a skeleton crew left in these uh, you know, uh, mining towns um, just to run the, the infrastructure that had then been put in, and so there was nothing to keep um, people to this town, and many towns died, and so therefore no one wanted to buy in the town anymore. Uh, there wasn't a demand for rental anymore, and so property prices... Um, you know, came off by the same amount and more than what they went up. So a 500, 600 grand property in Gladstone um, dropped to um, perhaps even half or much less very quickly. And Moorumbah was one of the worst exa- uh, best examples of the worst situation of, of buying a, uh, what had been a, a become a very expensive property and now it's a dud. And people have been left with a large mortgage against a property that's worth perhaps in some cases less than half of their mortgage. So this is why it's important to never buy in a one industry town, always buy in a location that has many industries, a good population base, a good population trend in growth, and a good uh, demand versus supply um, ratio. Yeah. Well said. Yeah, thank you for uh, clarifying that. Uh, what are your thoughts on cryptocurrency versus property investing? I, obviously, a lot of people are, are seeing the short-term gain. I think you're going to answer this really, really nicely versus the long-term um, you know, delayed gratification with property investing. Talk to me a little bit about crypto versus property investing. Crypto is, uh, I think, for some people, an excellent investment if they have the appropriate risk appetite. And and so it's more volatile with a number of these cryptocurrencies, uh, but it's also in return can be a fantastic return on the investment. Uh, The time it takes to become uh, adept at reducing risk with cryptocurrency is such that I've not invested too much into it. I'd rather focus on my property investing. I have put some money into it uh, and, you know, some have done okay. I haven't lost any money. Um, You know, of course, we all, with the benefit of hindsight, look back and wish we bought Bitcoin when it was $5 uh, back in around 2014. Um, But, you know, it's like anything, you have to look at your risk appetite, your risk profile, uh, the amount of money you can afford to invest and afford to lose. Uh, and that's the way you should think about investing in uh, cryptocurrency. Whereas with property, uh, you could say it's less liquid, um, although you can have an offset account or redraw and therefore you're creating liquidity if you've got equity. Uh, but it's also more stable. So it depends on your your strategy, how old you are. Do you have time in your life to make mistakes? Do you have time in your life to rectify those mistakes? Can you sleep at night with your decisions? There's a whole raft of things to determine what is a suitable property investment or any investment. Yeah, yeah well, well said. 
And um, I've been studying, obviously, investments for quite a number of years, not as long as you, and I'm not an expert in any case. But talk to me a little bit about stocks versus property investment. Obviously, there's a lot of people out there that push stocks and a lot of people push property. Um, what are your thoughts on stocks versus uh, real estate property investment? Look, I did like stocks a lot back in around 2000. Um, and I invested some money in the dot-com excitement. Um, so as a lot of um, people did that were, um, I guess, ignorant at the time to the risk associated with, um, you know, stocks that didn't have much uh, behind them. Uh, there are other stocks that I purchased that have done really, really well and I'm really excited with the return on investment. Amazon, Philips, uh, Microsoft I purchased 20 years ago. Uh, and Amazon's done wonderfully uh, in that time for me. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm not qualified to give advice on whether shares are a good or bad investment for people, and people should seek advice from a financial planner, for example. Uh, per, for, for me personally, I, I've enjoyed shares, uh, and I think for, for property, uh, property is more of a uh, – and share, some shares can be as well, but property is more of a longer-term situation. Of course, one of the best strategies, but higher risk strategies with property can be similar, I guess, to shares where you buy and sell, buy and sell. And that is perhaps to buy a block of land, knock the house down and build three or four townhouses. Uh, that's fantastic for manufacturing capital growth and cash flow uh, and being more in control of your own destiny. But there's considerable uh, risk associated with that and, and you need more money. Uh, to invest in that sort of uh, type of property investment versus a, a buy and hold strategy. Buy and hold is more longer term. Uh, you know, development's more um, a mix of short and long term and can be greater uh, returns but also greater risk. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Now, I'm going to be a little bit selfish here. I know you said before that you've trained uh, mortgage brokers as well. Um, I've done some work for... Um, well, I've done a couple of book summaries, one on Graham Home, the money mentor uh, in Australia. I'm not sure if you know who Graham Home is or not. No. No, okay. Um, that's okay. But my question to you is, what makes a good mortgage broker versus a bad mortgage broker? And shout out to my mate, Tony Walsh, uh, who's a great mortgage broker, by the way, but uh, just wanted to give him a quick little plug. But tell me, what, what, what are your thoughts on a good mortgage broker versus a bad mortgage broker? A good mortgage broker is a solution provider. And I know uh, and I had, I've dealt with many good ones. I guess the ones that let's say you could say are not as good are the ones that uh, perhaps only deal with three or four lenders on their panel of 30 or 40 and just choose the low-hanging fruit to offer to every client. And, and that's not the, the wisest approach to being a good, a good credit advisor as they, they're called now. You can't just use three lenders or four lenders uh, and plug you know every round peg into those square holes or vice versa. Um, so, and a good mortgage broker is able to provide solutions to not just your your you know your what we call vanilla clients or you know your PAYG in a good income with not many debts. You know that's an easy loan to write. Yeah. Compared to uh, a self-employed person that doesn't have tax returns, that might have some outstanding tax debt, 
uh, and they need a solution uh, to get some more cash out for working capital due to uh, COVID impact on their business. Uh, and so a good mortgage broker can provide a solution to those customers as well. Yeah, no, good answer. Yeah. Now I want to talk a little bit about yourself and, and your daily routine. Are you a morning person like myself or are you more of a, a night owl? Look, I like to get up. Uh, I like to do a 10K run every day. Um, I do uh, karate, of course, and kickboxing, try to stay fit and healthy because I think without our fitness and health, we don't have anything. Uh, so we need to be healthy and fit. So, yeah, I like to get up early, get some uh, exercise in because a shower feels much better after exercise than just getting out of bed and having one. Yep. And uh, uh, what was what was COVID like with, with your business and transitioning from obviously – offline to now online um, as we're having an interview over the web. What, what was the transition like for you with COVID? Look, uh, the property side of things, people were afraid. There's a lot of misinformation out there. A couple of the large big banks were were um, painting a picture that just completely proved to be false, such as property prices are going to drop by 30% is what they were saying, uh, a couple of these big banks, and they couldn't have been more wrong or, or ignorant in, in that information. Um, so, but property um, quietened and my business quietened. Uh, so I've kept myself busy on, on two other fronts. Uh, one, I'm doing another law degree. I've already got a, a master's in commercial law and two other master's degrees, but I'm doing a, another law degree. Uh, and, and so studying uh, has kept me um, out of trouble and I guess um, uh, you know, more focused on worrying about lockdown. And I've also uh, started my own mortgage broking business because I've trained enough brokers doing it and helped enough brokers to do it. And I thought, well, look, it's a, it's a wonderful accompaniment to my property business. So I've, um, I'm heading in that direction to accompany my property business uh, over the coming months. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I was going to mention your qualifications. And uh, you've certainly done a lot of um a lot of schooling and university and you've never stopped um, learning and, and educating not just from a, a tertiary university level uh, but with books as well, writing and books and researching. I want to know who your top three either books or authors are or mentors um, that you would recommend other people to reach out to, read and consume their knowledge. Well, Richard Branson's obviously got to be um, the first one. Uh if you asked me a few years ago, um, I might have said Donald Trump um, as a businessman. Uh, but uh, look, I'm, I'm not so sure anymore. Um, and one of one of my other books that I uh, I know is worth reading is the, the Four Hour Workweek. Um, so look, there I get inspiration from a number of people. Um, and I guess the inspiration is not just uh, predicated upon being inspired by someone, but it's also the fact that I'm driven and I'm resilient. And those two things combined uh, mean that I keep myself inspired. Yeah. No, yeah, great, great answer. And I know you said you're currently working on at the moment, but where, where are we going to see you in sort of five years' time? What will you be doing and... Uh, would there be more books uh, from yourself, Andrew, in 2026? Yeah, so I've got another couple of children's books um, where I've done the layout 
Um, I've got another two property books where I've done the layout. Uh, at the moment, of course, I'm studying law and that's taking priority. And I think in, in, in four or five years' time, uh, my goal may in fact be to uh, expand into law uh, and, and perhaps um, practice law or use that um, degree to uh, enhance my service proposition in my mortgage broking and property business in some shape or form. Yeah. Amazing. Now, um, I'm going to throw an oddball question out there. I ask all my uh, guests this question. If you were to host a dinner party with three people from the past, famous, dead or alive, who would they be and what would you serve them? Um, I think Obama. Obama. One guest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I Richard think- Branson, maybe? Uh, well, he would be the second one. Yeah, uh, that's an that's an obvious one. Um, yeah, who would the third one be? Um, well, I think um, I would have Queen. The Queen? Uh, the the group? Um, oh, the group? Yeah, that's cool. Perfect. Um, yeah. Where would you take him for dinner, or would you have him at home? And what would you cook him? What would you do? Would you take him out, or, or yeah, have him at home? I think um, depending on the size of my house and the grandeur of it, at the time I might have them at home, uh, and I might perhaps get a catering uh, business to come in to make sure they don't um, choke on their food. Uh, although I, I pride myself of being a good cook with stir fry, stir fry, or stir fry. Um, and it would be probably a five-course meal, which it would include seafood, would include pork and crackling, and I'd have a different glass of wine for each course. I was going to say some fancy, uh, some fancy wine. Um, do you see yourself as a bit of a sommelier and uh, a wine expert from back in the day? Have you still got that touch? Look, I am uh, very choosy with it when it comes to wine, and, and I found... Um, there's a, I've got a red and a favourite white. Uh, I can't get the dessert wine that I used to buy in Italy and France in Australia, uh, but I've got a preferred red or white. And, look, I do like to try different different um, wines, but I know what I do like, and so I've bought several cases of this. What's your favourite wine? Are you a, a red, white, Chardonnay? Yeah, so I don't, I don't like Shiraz so much because... I don't like high tannin, too acidic, and not so full-bodied wines. And I think a, a, a Cabernet, uh, in my for my palate, is is smoother, more full-bodied, less tannin, less acidic. Uh, I don't and, like Chardonnay yeah. because that's um, too dry for me. I like a demi-sec. Uh, which is um, semi-sweet or a little bit sweeter, maybe a, a nice, uh, uh, you know, not a ten-dollar bottle, but a nice Moscato, uh, and also um, maybe a, a, a Verve um, Champagne rather than um, a sparkling wine. As you know, um, there are many sparkling wines out there that people far too often and too liberally call them champagne, when in fact it's illegal to do so. Only Epinay and Rams in the Champagne region of France can call uh, champagne champagne. So I prefer a real champagne than a sparkling wine made in Australia. Perfect. And just a, a quick question for you. I know you're the 
um, investment expert. Is it a good investment if you could afford it to uh, invest in an Australian winery or they or are they all being sold up to the Chinese? I haven't investigated. So I dealt with French. Um, I've dealt with chateaus and wine houses in Italy and I haven't really bothered investigating investing money. I think there, what I used to do is with investors is besides uh, the derivatives or options and futures contracts on parcels of wine, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 bottles of wine, is invest in the chateau or wine house itself because that venture capital can help the wine house perhaps employ a better onologist. Uh, they get better, better advice with their, their vines and their grapes and their planting techniques and the machinery they use and their, uh, and their vintage or aging techniques. And perhaps the past vintages can improve in value with future production uh, being worth more due to the enhanced techniques. Uh, and those enhanced techniques can improve the price of future production and, and drag up the price of past production because people want that past production more from that wine house. So it can be uh, a good investment if you do your homework and you, you get involved with the right uh, wine house. But yes, you are right. Sadly, um, there are a lot of uh, Asian involvement uh, and I think many Australian businesses are, are losing the Australianity, if that's a word that I can suddenly invent, um, in their business. No, good answer, and uh, well, well thought out as well. Now, uh, to wrap it up, where where can people find you? Where can they buy your books online? Uh, what's the best place for for them to reach you? So, my books are in some uh, many good bookstores, also on Amazon as a soft copy, uh, and also on my uh, my business website, Australian Property Advisory Group. Yeah, yeah, perfect. And uh, what's the last message you want to leave my audience with? is have a balanced approach to property investment, understand your goals, understand your capacity and your risk appetite and seek advice from a qualified professional. Perfect. So my uh, my guest today is Andrew Crossley, man of many talents, property wealth finance expert. Uh, thank you for the interview, Andrew. Thanks for your time. And to my audience, go out, uh, research this man, connect with him, buy his books, read his books, implement his knowledge, have a balanced approach to property investing, and if you need some advice, uh, pay Andrew for his services. Andrew, thanks for being on the Best Book Bits podcast, and uh, we look forward to having you on a guest in the future years to come. So thanks very much, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. No worries. Have a great day.